Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of the History of Yugoslav Football podcast. Conflict and Constitution. For the first time since episode 11, it's time for an episode to be almost entirely devoted to what's going on in the nation at large. Football will get a quick mention, but in this episode we'll pull the nation itself forward right up to 1974, and then, in the next episodes, we'll go back to bring football forward to that point too. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that Yugoslavia was essentially relatively quiet during the communist era, and that the breakup of the nation was, while not exactly instantaneous, was the result of a rapid process rather than something which was fated to happen from some time out. In part, we already know that not to be true. The interstate ethnic beef had never gone away. We saw that in the 1960s, through the defection of Ante Zanetic, and have seen a gradual increase in hostilities between clubs from Croatia and those from Serbia. And that only festered as time went on. That, in and of itself, is not enough to break a state which had, in its time to this point in the timeline, coped rather well with playing the Cold War superpowers off against each other for investment and balancing the three interests holding the country together. Those being keeping the central institutions of the state solid, modernising the country both economically and culturally, and ensuring nationalism didn't become an undermining factor. In this episode, we'll see the first of those three interests, keeping the central institutions of the state solid, play off against the third, curbing nationalism. The result of this balancing act would fatally undermine the state. As mentioned in our episodes wrapping up the Second World War, many Ashtaza fled Yugoslavia come the end of the war, rightly recognising that hanging around the new nation would be seriously detrimental to their life expectancy. The result was that there were both large Croatian emigre populations around the world, and that many of those pockets had a small section of whom were committed to extreme Croatian nationalism, even if they hadn't been directly members of the Ishtazi. These small cells of malcontents were, until the mid-1960s, little more than a nuisance. There were three and a bit organisations worth knowing about. The first was HOP, or as I'm going to call them, HOP. HOP didn't really do much, but were founded and led at first by Ante Pavelic himself. Essentially, the group were the rump of the Ishtazi who had gone to hide in Argentina and shifted their own description from hyper-nationalism to anti-communism. The second group were the HNO, or OTPO. They split off from HOP in 1955, as the founder, Max Lubrulic, disagreed with Pavelic over Pavelic's wish to negotiate land away to Yugoslavia to get an independent Croatia. Lubrulic, during the war, had been the head of the Croatian Holocaust, and HOP had used him essentially as Pavelic's bouncer. Anyone wanting to set up a movement that might challenge Hop would have gotten a visit from Liburich, and he would inevitably cause that movement to have a change of heart. Once Liburich's 
ambitions to lead Hop were done, and the split with Pivelich firmed up. He moved to a more militarist outlook with the HNO, setting up training camps and advocating guerrilla resistance to the point that he was even at times thought to be in the employ of the Soviets. In 1969, Liburich was brutally murdered in his own home. He had employed his godson, Ilya Stanich, at his publishing company, not knowing that Stanich was also known as the Mongoose and employed by the Yugoslav Secret Service. Stanich poisoned Liburich's coffee, but when the poison failed to work, Stanich panicked. As Liburich was stood over his sink vomiting out the poison, Stanich bludgeoned him in the head with a hammer twice and then dragged his body and stuffed it under the bed. Liburich was still alive at this point but with severe damage to his skull. He would eventually die under his bed, choking to death on a combination of his own vomit and blood, unable to move. Stanich's story would change over the years to that he merely let people into Liburich's house and they killed him. But given his original story is what he actually stated to the Secret Service, it seems to be the most credible version of events. The HNO would splinter and commit terrorist attacks over the following decade. The final group are the HRB, and it's they who would be the most active of all groups. It came out of emigres in Australia, who did most of their work outside of Yugoslavia itself, but would take action in 1968 very much inside Yugoslavia. On the 13th of July 1968, a bomb planted by Milenko Hikac exploded in the 20 October cinema in Belgrade. One person was killed, with around 80 more injured. Two and a half months later, Hikach would then set off three bombs in the toilets of Belgrade's main rail station. Hikach would be captured and convicted, but doubt still lies as to what exactly happened. Hikach maintained his innocence to his grave, and there is doubt over both the evidence behind his conviction and whether his death sentence was ever carried out. The state claimed it was, but there is evidence that Hikach was seriously ill while in prison and just died of natural causes. Given that the Yugoslav Secret Service weren't actually all that shy about just going to other places and assassinating terrorists, that Hirkach lasted to trial and wasn't executed swiftly lends these conspiracy theories plenty of credence. These were hardly the only terrorist atrocities carried out. But from where we're about to go in this episode, it's important to recognise that there were active annoyances for the Yugoslav state at this point. The first terror threat to the nation had been the Crusaders, set up by Stasi remnants straight after World War II. And that was eliminated quickly and mercilessly. And the nature of how the Secret Service operated necessitated that any resistance come from outside Yugoslavia, where they were a bit harder to reach. So before we move back to 1968 in Yugoslavia, it's time to quickly run through the the other major terrorist actions that go on through the 1970s. These are, as was the fashion at the time, mainly hijackings or air-related. In 1972, 
JAT Flight 367 from Stockholm to Belgrade was blown up over Czechoslovakia in a bombing commonly believed to have been carried out by a Croatian nationalist group, but the case was never actually solved. The bombing itself endures due to the survival of air hostess Vesna Vulovic, who fell with the plane from over 33,000 feet, surviving due to, well, a quite incredible slice of luck essentially having been pinned up against part of the fuselage by a drinks trolley, landing in the snow and having the combination of support around her cushioning the blow. She is the world record holder of uh, surviving the highest freefall. The HRB later would then launch the Begoigno group attacks in 1972, after believing the time was right for an internal Croatian insurgence. However, as soon as they arrived at their destination in Croatia, they were reported to police, and from there were more or less broken by sheer force. The HNO would hijack a plane in September 72, 10 days after the Munich massacre, to demand the release of members arrested for the murder of the Yugoslav ambassador to Sweden the prior year. Sweden paid off the hijackers, but when they flew to Spain to escape, they were surrounded and the aircraft stormed with no casualties. TWA Flight 355 would be hijacked also in 1976 by unaffiliated Croatian nationalists. They would use the threat of fake bombs to get the pilots to fly them to Paris, where they were arrested. They had, however, taken the plane in New York and left a very real bomb in Grand Central Station. And while the NYPD tried to disarm it, it exploded and killed a police officer. Finally, in 1979, there would be the actions of Nikola Kavaya. Kavaya was a former army member who had left the army in the 50s due to a general dislike of communism and instead ended up setting up his own Serbian nationalist group moving to the USA and performing activities for the CIA while carrying an obsession with trying to murder Tito. Two assassination attempts in the 1970s were foiled by Tito simply not appearing where he was expected to. So, Tavaya went rogue and became a terrorist, setting up the SOPO and bombing Yugoslav embassies and consulates within the USA. The entire group was arrested in 1978 but Kavaya would, oddly, be released on bail, because apparently releasing terrorist leaders on bail was a thing back then, and when visiting family in June 1979, instead decided he was going to hijack a plane to demand the release of his associates. When he realised that the, that release wasn't going to happen, he demanded a second plane to fly out of the US, which he got. Intending to fly to Yugoslavia and fly said plane into Yugoslavia and do a 9-11 on the headquarters of the Communist Party. He travelled on the flight with his lawyer to a refueling stop in Ireland, as his lawyer convinced him that Ireland wouldn't turn him back over to the US to arrest. After then convincing Kavaya to surrender in Ireland, the Irish promptly turned him over to the US for arrest, who stuck him in jail and he would later claim to have inspired 9-11. So, it's fair to say 
that there were people who were somewhat febrile at the continuation of Yugoslavia outside of Yugoslavia. But while this was all going on outside, other events were going on inside. As we've mentioned previously, Croatia had become not just one of the wealthiest parts of Yugoslavia, but also one of the most educated. The fall of Aleksandr Rankovic had meant that some of the more conservative voices in the Communist Party had been silenced, and the party itself became more democratic in the late 1960s, as a result of a new generation of communist leaders starting to enter positions of leadership. In 1967, within a year of Rankovic's fall, 130 scholars created the, and I will apologise in advance for the pronunciation here, Declaracia on Nazivu i Polzaju Hrvatskog Nizevnog Jezka, which demanded equal treatment of lang- regional languages in Yugoslavia, as opposed to the top-down imposition of a single state language. While the goals of this document applied to all ethnicities within Yugoslavia, it was in Croatia which it galvanised support with the public and, most noisily, student organisations, and expanded to not just a pride in language and identity, but also history. That step, of course, was the one thing that Tito and the centre of the state could not tolerate. Another key expansion of the demands became economic, as support moved from what would be a bunch of disparate groups into what would become what we call MASPOK, M-A-S-P-O-K. Essentially, as Croatia was one of the richest areas of the nation, with the most foreign investment, the argument was that more of that money should stay in Croatia. This was raised to the party at large in 1970 by Savka Dabcevic Kucar, the head of the Croatian government, and resulted in an interregional row that prevented any budget being passed. Maspok even broke into football. On the 23rd of September 1970, at Stari Plac, a game between Hajduk and OFK Belgrade had to be abandoned after the Serb referee was knocked out cold by an object thrown from the stands, and OFK would be awarded a 3-0 victory. That disciplinary measure led to protests in Split, led by the Torcida, that came with a distinctly nationalist flavour. Stories abound of cars with Belgrade number plates being found, stolen, and finding themselves a resting place in the Adriatic. Because of the nationalist tone to these protests, and fearful of Maspok, the government intervened and made the FA overturn their decision and reinstate the original two-all score at the time of abandonment. As 1970 became 1971, the lack of progress and of unity led to protests in 1971, and a grammar book was published by scholars in Croatian only, which would be immediately banned and burned. Tito had had enough. In December 1971, the Croatian leadership was picked out and pushed to resign, 
with persecution coming the way of those who took part in MASPOC, including future President Franjo Tudjman, part of only of over 2,000 arrested and up to 100,000 impacted by their loss of jobs, etc., as a result of their actions. The movement itself will be smeared as the secret services posed as MASPOC protesters praising Pavelic and demanding a return to fascism. This period, as a whole, will become known as the Croatian Spring. The period which directly follows will be known as the Croatian Silence. Nationalism was, of course, the enemy of the Yugoslav state, but it's important to recognise that the Croatian Spring was not a movement that would be overtly nationalist or right-wing. It wasn't a movement demanding independence or a drastic shift away from the way of doing things. It was a movement demanding that the constituent parts of Yugoslavia have more say on how they spend their money and how they express their culture. It was a natural political and social step on from what had happened in society in the previous decade. Croatia was growing a defined culture. Its media channels were growing in size and reach its people were becoming more exposed to Western culture and educated in a liberal manner which showed them that other ways than Tito's way were possible. And the run-up to the Croatian Spring saw the first generation who were exposed to other ways of thinking coming through to lead proceedings in the region. The same was happening across the region, and the leadership of the nation would face with a dilemma. A combination of three generations an older generation who weren't willing to let old scores be settled, the current generation of leadership who were advancing in age, as by the time the Croatian Spring was finished, Tito was fast approaching 80, and a younger generation who saw new divides between the regions. The solution for this was found in 1974 by constitutional means. It would be overly simplistic to suggest that this simply took on all the demands from the Croatian Spring. Rather, it was the result of eight years of internal messing about that began with the fall of Rankovic and ends with this constitution. Numerous careers had been ended in the interim, as Tito sought to curb any nationalist thinking in the regions. The major elements of the constitution were as follows. Serbia's power was curbed as Serbian regions Vojvodina and Kosovo were given more powers so as to keep minorities there happy and to try to prevent power becoming concentrated in and around Serbia. Tito became president for life and, after he went, power would go to an eight-member presidency comprised of representatives from each region. More power was given to regions to be able to self-determine or, as we'll find, even secede, while also altering the method of allowing it to the state to stack the decks against any region that actually did want to secede. That, obviously, is a gross oversimplification of a complex document, but it notes the major points and problems with the 1974 constitution. While Serbia became smaller geographically, it became small geographically, while also carrying large Serb populations in those extra regions. What reduced Serbia from one region in six 
to one in eight on paper, also brought the possibility that if they could get friendly people in Serb minority areas such as Vojvodina and Kosovo, then they would move from one in six to three in eight, making their vote all that more influential. This becomes, at the back end of the 1980s, a massive problem, as that potential issue becomes a very real one. Meeting the Croatian Springs demand wasn't so much an issue. They were relatively mild, and by waiting till 1974 to do it, it had meant that Croatia had come off the boil and calmed prior to any of these demands being met. But it showed that MASPOC pressuring the nation could work, as the nation would work always for security through unity. But the balancing act of the articles around secession had unbalanced it also. It meant that the only way to keep the nation together was to keep the regions divided, so as not to visibly rig the state against secession, but not so divided that a single region would feel hard done by enough to want to just unilaterally succeed. In short, to keep the nationalist grudges of the older generation and the liberalism of the younger generation from ever having common cause. While Tito was at the wheel, there was a force of personality strong enough to keep those two generations apart, and the move of him to president for life took any thoughts of succession, immediately anyway, from the table. The constitution itself was progressive, but it came with a ticking time bomb of weaknesses added to the structure of the state. The first date at which we can directly trace the breakup of the Yugoslavia was the date this constitution came into effect, the 21st of February 1974. Things wouldn't go badly wrong yet, but the constitution ensured that things were in place to allow that to happen. Next time on the History of Yugoslav podcast. We go back to the 1960s and we go back to football to pick up where we left off after Euro 1968, as the 1960s ended very much like the 1950s. Thank you very much for listening and I'll catch you next time.